you study your Bibles this morning. Amen. Yeah. This morning we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark titled On the Road with Jesus. The hope of our time studying this gospel is that we together on this journey of life go with Jesus. Beholding him, learning from his every word, seeing all his ways, every emotion felt, every deed done. Now this creates a problem, but it is a good problem for us to have. Let me tell you why. Because we all have ideas and assumptions about who Jesus is. And what this series has done is is not face us with the Jesus that we have imagined, not the Jesus that we have settled our minds on, but the Jesus according to Scripture. Mark calls this good news. And that's how he begins his letter. He says this is the beginning of the gospel or the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it is only good news to those who believe. That's a message I'll get to later, but every week we come to this text asking God to provide what we need from him. Ears to hear his word, eyes to see his goodness, hearts softened and receptive to his love, hands that carry out his mission, belonging in a world that is aggressively not for us, friends and allies in times of division and discord, a true and deep satisfaction of the soul. Mark has a funny way of writing to us. He writes as someone with urgency, someone in a hurry to get this good news out. Everything that happens in his letter happens quickly. Mark moves from one scene to the next. As soon as one finishes, he's already presenting to you another one. And two weeks ago, we looked at the third time he's used this literary practice called a sandwich. It's really called interpolations, but that's not as fun to say. Essentially, what Mark does is he takes one story, he splits it up, introduction and conclusion, and he sandwiches a seemingly different story in the middle. And all together, we have purposefully, beautifully crafted this point that Mark uh, uh, is teaching us. So we have the introduction of story A, all of story B, and the conclusion of story A. Our text this morning is the conclusion of Mark's first story. It began with Jesus sending out the disciples to preach the gospel and be a good in the cities and towns that they enter. But then Mark shifts the story and tells us that Jesus's popularity has reached the ears of the tetrarch Herod Antipas. Herod is an interesting guy to say the least. If you remember last week's message, uh, uh, he is a, a man who is at war with his own passions and thoughts and where that takes him, we'll see in a couple chapters, is a place of complete hard-heartedness. But when Herod, who has this bad habit of calling himself king because he's not a king, hears about Jesus, he convinces himself that out of his own guilt that John the Baptist has returned from the dead. And why does Herod think that? Well, Mark gives us a flashback to a time where Herod threw for himself a lavish birthday banquet, as befits a king, 
featuring all the region's elites and all his powerful friends, full of exotic and sensual entertainment, food and drinks, Herod gets himself into a mess by making a decree that anything his stepdaughter asks for will be hers. And so the head of John the Baptist is asked for. Herod doesn't want to do this, but more than that, he doesn't want to look like an idiot in front of his cool friend, and so he obliges. This week, we close the sandwich, looking to the conclusion of the first story, so the bottom piece of bread, so to speak. The disciples return to Jesus after they carried out their mission, and they report what they've done in the exchange. We know from the other gospel accounts of this moment that Jesus shares with them the death of John the Baptist. And what happens next is probably the most popular scene we know of Jesus. You've heard it countless times. You've seen many different interpretations. You've seen many different renditions of it. What we read this morning will not be new to you. You've seen it in Sunday school, in kids' ministries. You've seen it on TV and in movies. And so I've titled our time in this passage, A Banquet in the Desolate Place. And I have a couple of points to submit to you for your edification and joy in the Lord. Would you stand with me in the reading of God's word? And then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Mark chapter six, six, excuse me, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus And told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now when they, now many saw them and go, many saw them going, excuse me, and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when he found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we come to be fed by your word this morning. May it sharpen us. May it penetrate the deepest places of our hearts. 
May we delight in your instruction, be encouraged by your message, and corrected by your care. God, some of us feel like we are in a desolate place this morning. And in perfect time, you have delivered to us this portion. God, would you help me as the preacher deliver its content with clarity of speech and thought? And would you give the congregation as its hearers attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In 1971, the civil rights movement was coming to uh, sort of an end within mainstream media. It was beginning to fade. That's when Gil Scott Heron, a jazz poet, wrote and released probably one of the most famous poems titled, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. This poem was an inspiration for America, but more specifically for black America, to remain focused on the fight for justice even when the mainstream attention to the issue dies. No matter what revisionists will say today, the poem was a call to remember that there was still work to be done. While the majority culture of America resumed their focus on entertainment and celebrity gossip and sports and the like, the hope for a brighter day was still on the minds of the oppressed. The revolution would not be televised. Why do I share this with you this morning? Because our portion of scripture, which is found in every gospel account with little difference in terms of capturing this moment, is about a revolution. That's Tim Keller's word, but I do not see it any other way. I believe that Tim, if I could call him Tim, (laughs) we're homies, we'll just notice that. But I believe that he captures in one word what every commentator on the event describes. This moment was indeed a revolution, and it was a revolution in a manner of speaking that would not be televised. What would happen in this moment didn't happen in Jerusalem. It didn't happen in Capernaum. It took place in a desolate area. This is the scene for a revolution that will not end until glory comes. A revolution that you and I are participants of today. However, that's not how we remember this scene, though. On TV and in movies, this is a beautiful scene, right? This is a beautiful scene of the hungry being fed. A scene of laughter and love, a picnic with Jesus, brunch with Jehovah, mimosas with the Messiah. A revolution is not how we remember this moment. How is this then about the overthrow of a social order? Allow me to make my case. This vignette begins with Jesus telling the disciples, let's go to a desolate place for rest. Jesus wants time alone with the 12, just to relax and recuperate. It says that they were so known, people kept coming to them, so they didn't even have time to eat. So they get in a boat and they head for a desolate place, the one that Jesus has on his mind. Our first observation is found here in this point in verse 32. There is a retreat that needs to happen after wearisome work. But our idea of retreat and Jesus' idea of retreat are vastly different. For us, we go on vacation. We go someplace exotic or we go someplace uh, 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 different than here, right? And, and we, don't, we, we don't really go there to rest. 
We go there to experience things, to busy ourselves still. Now, I'm not against a vacation. I'm not. Don't hear me say that. But I am saying that what we call rest ain't really rest, and we should learn how to rest. Essentially, we go to these places to be entertained. That's why we've created the expression of vacation from the vacation, right? We don't know how to get away, how to be prepared for the next season of life in silence and solitude. We don't know how to get away to be purified. Oftentimes, when we experience the desolate places of life, we immediately associate themselves with pain or hardship. And that may, we- that may very well be the case. But listen to the heart of our prayers in those seasons. Well, our heart's, our heart's disposition is never for the purification of our souls. What we do pray is deliverance from our discomfort. You don't hear me this morning. In Scripture, deserted places can often be places of preparation, purification, temptation, and testing. I was recently telling a friend of mine about this series, and I said, I feel like I'm studying Exodus the more I study Mark. Mark loves to write with Exodus on his mind, constantly making parallels between Moses and Jesus and the disciples and the Israelites. Recall with me in your minds what happened in chapter 1. We've already seen the desert be a setting for testing and temptation in Mark's account. We've already seen it be a place of purification. As the Israelites in Exodus sojourned the desert, constantly tempted with forgetting the promises of God, so we see Jesus overcoming temptation on our behalf. We need this scene fresh in our minds to understand this text. The desolate place was a place of unbelief for the Israelites of old. It was also a place of grace and constant provision to them. But the Israelites at this time John the Baptist's ministry in the wilderness would be the same, where God provided water and bread to sustain the Israelites' lives, the ones back then. Now, through John, God provided spiritual bread and baptism in the waters of repentance for the people of God to receive the gospel. The setting of our passage here is not the desert, but it is described the same. A desolate place, a lonely place, an empty place. And this is where Jesus is taking the disciples to be refreshed. However, notice... That what the disciples have in their minds is not at all what Jesus has in his. Again, we are confronted with the concept that what we think and what is are actually different. Jesus and his instruction to go away and rest is teaching the disciples to not be so caught up, so absorbed in the work that they are doing that they fail to care for themselves by resting, by being restored in the quiet, by being alone in the presence of Jesus. My observation to you is rest, family, in the silence, in the quiet, and God will meet you there. But what happens when the seasons of rest are interrupted? What happens when the unexpected for us occurs? Mark 6 continues in verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. That's the intention, right? 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went on shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. That's the interruption. The people, they see Jesus getting into the boat, and they run around the coast of the Sea of Galilee to meet Jesus where he's going. Imagine you chasing a boat on foot that's going down the river. Now, mind you, they didn't come, Jesus and the disciples, they weren't going to a city. They weren't going to a town or a village. The word here is a desolate place. The translation is an empty place. We know from the other gospel accounts of this moment that this is the rural area, the mountains. But there were a people there, a people who lived there. There who lived there were the zealots. There weren't a lot of people there, but the ones there were the revolutionaries. The anti-Rome, take back the land by any means necessary kinds of people. The crowd following Jesus along the shore attracts those who live in this area because they too have heard of Jesus' message and goes to there. If you want to cross-reference John chapter 6. But take a moment and consider something. Is Jesus all-knowing? Absolutely. Does this politically charged crowd showing up there in the middle of nowhere despite the disciples' need for respite and rest surprise him? Not at all. Does Jesus send them away? Does he avoid them? Does he tell them, we've, we've had a long day of work. We've had a long few months of work. We're tired. We need rest. We'll meet with you tomorrow. No. Does Jesus find their identities as extremists, off-putting, or too draining of his energies. No. Jesus promises the disciples refreshment, but these people are the ones who show up instead. Family, when you are in the desolate places of life, are you wondering, where are the promises of God to you? Where is the rest? Where is the peace? Where is the relief? Where is the joy? Let us, like the disciples, learn from Jesus this morning. Our second observation is kingship. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus meets these people, not with indifference, but with compassion. To Jesus, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. This is an important note. Mark makes in telling this story to us. This language is often used in a pastoral sense, right? You and I, we, we, we think about this Davidically, right? As a leader who will care for and take them, uh, walk them through this season of life. We, we think of texts like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall have no wants. He will provide all my needs. And this is good and true and right for us to think this way, but that isn't the totality of what, Mark, what is on Mark's mind when he writes this phrase. Again, Mark has the Exodus story behind this. Mark says that Jesus sees these people lacking a Moses. 
a leader to guide them. But there's also a connotation of someone like a Joshua at play here, a political and militaristic leader, right? That's what these people want from him. Jesus sees in them a whole people without a leader, without a purpose, without direction, which is interesting. Consider that there is an ethos among these people. John's account gives us what their intention is. I believe the verses uh, 15 of chapter 6. John says that these people came to make Jesus their king by force. They have no reason to bow to Herod. They want Jesus as their king. What John says plainly, though, Mark tells us in his own way via this Mark and sandwich. The story before this was about a man named Herod who calls himself king even though he isn't and beheads the most respected and righteous man in the region, a man who Jesus himself calls the greatest as a party favor. These people gathered here before Jesus are full of angst. They are full of zeal, hence their name zealots, and are looking for their king, a Jewish king, not a pretender or a Roman sympathizer like Herod. These people gathered here are revolutionaries with an idea about a revolution. But that is not the revolution that Jesus has in his mind. In his compassion for this crowd, Jesus preaches to them. And he preaches the gospel. The compassion here, though, is intense. It means from the stomach. His compassion was so deep for these people, he felt it at the pit of his stomach. He seized their perceived needs, but he also seized their actual needs. To them, their longing, as I said, for a political and militant leader. That's what they think they need. They think they need a Joshua. But in reality, what Jesus sees are lost sheep, sinners, outcasts, people on the fringe, oppressed. And his compassion leads him not to fulfill what they want, but to fulfill what they need. And he's going to do that two ways, with word and deed. Jesus, led by his compassion, feeds them with his word, right? He preaches the whole day to them, teaching them a great many things. He, like Moses, shepherds their souls. He preaches John's message of repentance and forgiveness of God. A message about a kingdom, not a Roman kingdom, not a Jewish kingdom, but a kingdom of God. Family, I don't know about you, but what I need is a compassionate God who is compassionate towards me. What I need is not a, a ruler by force. What I need is a gentle king. A king who sees the deadness of my spirit and due to the consequences of my sins and offers me life and empowerment to be his. I need a king who makes enemies his friends. I need a king who, when I'm faced with the darknesses of depression, reminds me that he is light and therefore there is no darkness in him. I need a king who, when children are wayward, inclines his ears to the prayers of their parents to soothe their souls. I need a balm for my hurt and a shoulder for my tears. I need a compassionate king, church, and so do you. Mark continues. Verse 35. And it grew late. His disciples came to him and said, 
This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out and said, five and two fish. As much as, much as I want to criticize the disciples, I can't help but see myself in them. On the surface, they make a reasonable request to Jesus, right? Amen. It's getting late. It's getting late. We haven't slept. We haven't eaten. We're in the middle of nowhere. Let's send everybody home. Can we please send them on their way? But Jesus answers unexpectedly. He charges them. You feed them. The disciples, they don't get it. They don't get it. They're taken aback. And they reply, ironically, with what money? What money? What money do we have to feed these people? They say to feed everyone here would take 200 days worth of work. Jesus tells them to look for what's already among them. Oh, man. Jesus tells them, look, 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 go tell me what you got. And all they can find is five loaves of bread and two fish. There's a sense of doubt in the disciples' disposition. To them, they are focused on themselves. They are tired. They are hungry. They want to rest. They're wondering what happened to going away by ourselves. What happened to the retreat? What happened to the refreshment? What is going on? Now I got to feed these people. How? With what money? With what food? In the middle of nowhere. But Jesus created this situation. He tells them that provision for the people must come from the disciples, not from within the ones in need. Oh, man. Jesus does not agree with the disciples. He doesn't say, well, yeah, if they're hungry, they should be able to provide for themselves. Rather, Jesus tells the disciples, be shepherds, feed the sheep. The disciples still don't get it. If we took a, 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 just a peek over into next week's text and we look at verse 52, we see why. The disciples' hearts still, even after all this time with Jesus, even after all this miraculous work that they've done themselves, they are still hardened, only focused on themselves. And Jesus is trying to lead them to a place of understanding See, where we see impossibilities, Jesus sees the possibilities. They are like a, a little bit like Moses in this moment. Confronted with the Israelites' need in the wilderness, Moses says two things. He, he looks to God and he says, where will the bread come from and where will the fish? I love that. The disciples bring Jesus the scraps of bread and the scraps of fish. Barely anything. But Jesus' compassion for the multitudes is preaching to the disciples, if thousands are hungry, then you need to feed thousands. And he's already fed them spiritually. Now he's going to feed them physically. Look at verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves. That's important. 
broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And when they all ate, they were satisfied. That's important as well. They were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Jesus instructs them to create order among the chaos. We've heard that before. Jesus instructs them, create order among this chaos. There's at least 20,000 people here. The 5,000 is just men. It's very clear. The 5,000 is just men. If we are considering their wives and their children, there's somewhere near or above 20,000. Jesus tells them, organize this mess. Put them in pots of groups of 50s and 100s. I love the Greek here. It's garden pot by garden pot. And the disciples organized the people, how? The same way Moses did the Israelites. I love that. The same way Moses did the Israelites by hundreds and 50s. So the disciples Organized the people here by hundreds and fifties. Jesus is so intentional with this lesson that he is giving the disciples. These brothers know this layout. When Jesus says to organize them in this way, these brothers are not clueless. They have an understanding that this is symbolic. This is reflective of something that has happened in the past. Jesus is showing them in your doubt, trust the Lord's provision. The arrangement of the people, the organization of the chaos alone is already preaching God's miraculous provision for a needy people. Jesus takes these scraps of bread and scraps of fish, look towards the sky. He prays a prayer and he breaks the bread and divides the fish. The food kept multiplying. Jesus, with a word, has multiplied the food down to a molecular level. He is flexing his creation power, reminding the disciples that nothing is impossible for him, not physically, not spiritually. One final observation for us. This was the revolution no one expected, not even us says there, all who were there were satisfied. There is a fullness to this word here. A spiritual and physical satisfaction in Jesus. He didn't just preach. He fed. Like a loving shepherd, he provides for his sheep and satisfies them in the deepest way. As the Israelites received provision from God in a desolate place, so did this crowd. We must notice, family, that it is not the miracle itself that is important, but the one who performs it, the one who leads and teaches. Jesus is not merely rabbi. He's also Messiah. He acts. And these people who are longing for a leader Longing for a purpose, longing for a particular kind of political liberation, find the answers to their questions in a way they did not expect. Jesus will not meet their desire for a militaristic leader. He will not be a militant messianic shepherd of the sheep. 
Instead, Jesus shows them, I am the liberator you need, but of your soul. What I give to you is not your idea of satisfaction. What I give to you is not your idea of restoration of an earthly kingdom. What I give to you is belonging, the place, and a new kingdom altogether. It is not of this world, but it is in this world. This is the revolution. This is the overthrow of a social order to a new order in the kingdom of God, where the least shall be the greatest and the oppressed shall be more than conquerors, where the king is Jesus and the citizens his children, where the hungry are fed, the cold are clothed, the poor are taken care of, and the forgotten remembered. This is the kingdom of God. In this Mark and Sandwich, there is a tale of two banquets. The first banquet contains the rich, the powerful, the elites of this world. The second contains the poor, the needy, the outcasts, the oppressed. The first banquet contains a meal for the lavish. The second, a peasant's meal. The first banquet was in honor of a pretender king whose appetites were all to serve himself. The second banquet was for a king who would come to serve, to foreshadow his ultimate sacrifice for his people forever and ever. In the first banquet, A senseless murder takes place in hopes to achieve satisfaction. In the the second banquet, satisfaction is found in Christ's compassion and love. What does the bread mean? For us, in in our Western minds, bread is carbohydrates. Can't have too much of it. I love bread, man. I'll I'll take bread over pasta any day. Y'all could keep y'all fettuccine. Give me some bread with butter. But bread to the church means life. Jesus breaking bread in this moment is a layered lesson. Bread now represents bread to come. The full satisfaction they all received from this meal was unlike any other meal that they've ever had. Their soul, as well as their stomachs, were satisfied. And yet, it is also just like every other meal they've ever had, in that they will be hungry again eventually. They will eat again. But the temporary satisfaction they received points them to an eternal satisfaction in Christ. And so this is our revolutionary instruction. Feed those who need feeding, body and soul. For you tell of the eternal provision in heaven. Show compassion to others, for it will tell of the compassion of God to grant them access into eternity's gates. Be empowered now to live as Jesus lived, to tell the story of the gospel in word and deed, just as he did to a world longing for a leader, longing for justice, longing for hope and something to believe in. That's how the revolution continues, not by force, but by provision, not by indifference, but by compassion, not by idleness, but by being the hands and feet of Jesus. Stand with me in worship.